0: I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. Tonight's author is the English writer William Somerset Maugham, one of the 20th century's great novelists and storytellers. During World War II, he was talking to a young American soldier who told Maugham that he was his favorite writer. When Maugham asked him why, the young man said, Because when I read your books, I never have to look up a word. Maugham took it as a huge compliment. He had worked for years to give his prose the polish of simplicity and clarity. No words got in the way of the fascinating tales he told. Tonight's program offers the surprising and satisfying story of a verger in an English church, the man in charge of the interior of the church who also attends various services and ceremonies. The Verger by Somerset Maugham. There had been a christening that afternoon at St. Peter's, Neville Square, and Albert Edward Foreman still wore his verger's gown. He still kept his new one its folds as full and stiff as though it were made not of alpaca but of perennial bronze for funerals and weddings st peter's neville square was a church much favored by the fashionable for these ceremonies and now he wore only his second best he wore it with complaisance, for it was the dignified symbol of his office and without it when he took it off to go home he had the disconcerting sensation of being somewhat insufficiently clad He took pains with it. He pressed it and ironed it himself. During the sixteen years he had been verger of this church, he had had a succession of such gowns, but he had never been able to throw them away when they were worn out, and the complete series, neatly wrapped up in brown paper, lay in the bottom drawers of the wardrobe in his bedroom. The verger busied himself quietly, replacing the painted wooden cover of the marble font taking away a chair that had been brought for an infirm old lady, and waited for the vicar to have finished in the vestry so that he could tidy up in there and go home. Presently he saw him walk across the chancel, genuflect in front of the high altar, and come down the aisle. But he still wore his cassock. "'What's he hanging about for?' the verger said to himself. "'Don't he know I want my tea?' The vicar had been but recently appointed— a red-faced, energetic man in the early forties. Albert Edward still regretted his predecessor, a clergyman of the old school who preached leisurely sermons in a silvery voice and dined out a great deal with his more aristocratic parishioners. He liked things in church to be just so, but he never fussed. He was not like this new man who wanted to have his finger in every pie. But Albert Edward was tolerant. St. Peter's was in a very good neighborhood, and the parishioners were a very nice class of people. The new vicar had come from the east end, and he couldn't be expected to fall in all at once with the discreet ways of his fashionable congregation. "'All is hustle,' said Albert Edward. "'But give him time. He'll learn.' When the vicar had walked down the aisle so far that he could address the verger without raising his voice more than was becoming in a place of worship, he stopped. "'Foreman,' Will you come into the vestry for a minute? I have something to say to you. Very good, sir. The vicar waited for him to come up, and they walked up the church together. Very nice christening, I thought, sir. Funny how the baby stopped crying the moment you took him. I've noticed they very often do, said the vicar, with a little smile. After all, I've had a good deal of practice with them. It was a source of subdued pride to him that he could nearly always quiet a whimpering infant by the manner in which he held it and he was not unconscious of the amused admiration with which mothers and nurses watched him settle the baby in the crook of his surpliced arm. The verger knew that it pleased him to be complimented on his talent. The vicar preceded Albert Edward into the vestry. Albert Edward was a trifle surprised to find the two churchwardens there. He had not seen them come in. They gave him pleasant nods. "'Good afternoon, my lord. Good afternoon, sir,' he said to one after the other. They were elderly men, both of them, and they had been churchwardens almost as long as Albert Edward had been verger. They were sitting now at a handsome refectory table that the old vicar had brought many years before from Italy, and the vicar sat down in the vacant chair between them. Albert Edward faced them, the table between him and them, and wondered with slight uneasiness what was the matter. He remembered still the occasion on which the organist had got into trouble and the bother they had all had to hush things up in a church like St. Peter's, Neville Square, they couldn't afford a scandal. On the vicar's red face was a look of resolute benignity, but the others bore an expression that was slightly troubled. "'He's been nagging them, he has,' said the verger to himself. "'He's jockeyed them into doing something, but they don't half like it. That's what it is, you mark my words.' But his thoughts did not appear on Albert Edward's clean-cut and distinguished features. He stood in a respectful but not obsequious attitude." He had been in service before he was appointed to his ecclesiastical office, but only in very good houses, and his deportment was irreproachable. Starting as a page-boy in the household of a merchant prince, he had risen by due degrees from the position of fourth to first footman. For a year he had been single-handed butler to a widowed peeress, and, till the vacancy occurred at St. Peter's, butler with two men under him in the house of a retired ambassador. He was tall, spare, grave and dignified he looked if not like a duke at least like an actor of the old school who specialised in duke's parts he had tact firmness and self-assurance his character was unimpeachable the vicar began briskly Uh, "'Foreman, um, we've got something rather unpleasant to say to you. You've been here a great many years, and I think his lordship and the general agree with me that you've fulfilled the duties of your office to the satisfaction of everybody concerned.' The two churchwardens nodded. "'But um, a most extraordinary circumstance came to my knowledge the other day, and I felt it my duty to impart it to the churchwardens. I discovered to my astonishment that you could neither read nor write.' The verger's face betrayed no sign of embarrassment. "'The last vicar knew that, sir,' he replied. "'He said he didn't make no difference. "'He always said there was a great deal too much education in the world for his taste.' "'It's the most amazing thing I ever heard,' cried the general. "'You mean to say that you've been verger of this church for sixteen years "'and never learned to read or write?' "'I went into service when I was twelve, sir. "'The cook, in the first place, tried to teach me once, "'but I didn't seem to have the knack for it, "'and then, with one thing and another, I never seemed to have the time.' "'I never really found the want of it. "'I think a lot of these young fellows "'waste a real lot of time reading "'when they might be doing something useful. "'But don't you want to know the news?' "'said the other churchwarden. "'Don't you ever want to write a letter?' Uh, "'No, me lord. "'I seem to manage very well without. "'And of late years, "'now they've all these pictures in the papers, "'I get to know what's going on pretty well. "'My wife's quite a scholar, "'and if I want to write a letter, "'she writes it for me. "'It's not as if I was a betting man.' The two churchwardens gave the vicar a troubled glance, and then looked down at the table. "'Well, foreman, I've discussed the matter over with these gentlemen, and they quite agree with me that the situation is impossible. At a church like St. Peter's, Neville Square, we cannot have a verger who can neither read nor write.' Albert Edwards' thin, sallow face reddened, and he moved uneasily on his feet, but he made no reply. "'Understand me, foreman, I have no complaint to make against you.' You do your work quite satisfactorily. I have the highest opinion, both of your character and of your capacity. But we haven't the right to take the risk of some accident that might happen owing to your lamentable ignorance. It's a matter of prudence as well as of principle. What couldn't you learn, Foreman?' asked the General. "'No, sir, I'm afraid I couldn't. Not now. You see, I'm not as young as I was, and if I couldn't seem to get the letters in me head when I was a nipper, I don't think there's much chance of it now.' We don't want to be harsh with you," Foreman said the vicar, "but the churchwardens and I have quite made up our minds. We'll give you three months, and if the end of that time you cannot read and write, I'm afraid you'll have to go." Albert Edward never liked the new vicar. He'd said from the beginning that they'd made a mistake when they gave him Saint Peter's. He wasn't the type of man they wanted with a classy congregation like that. And now he straightened himself a little. He knew his value, and he wasn't going to allow himself to be put upon. "'I'm very sorry, sir. I'm afraid it's no good. I'm too old a dog to learn new tricks. I've lived a good many years without knowing how to read and write, and without wishing to praise myself—self praise is no recommendation—I don't mind saying I've done my duty in that state of life in which it has pleased a merciful providence to place me, and if I could learn now, I don't know as I'd want to.' "'In that case, foreman, I'm afraid you must go.' "'Yes, sir, I quite understand.' I shall be happy to end in my resignation as soon as you've found somebody to take my place. But when Albert Edward, with his usual politeness, had closed the church door behind the vicar and the two churchwardens, he could not sustain the air of unruffled dignity with which he had borne the blow inflicted upon him, and his lips quivered. He walked slowly back to the vestry, and hung up on its proper peg his verger's gown. He sighed as he thought of all the grand funerals and smart weddings it had seen. He tidied everything up, put on his coat, and hat in hand walked down the aisle. He locked the church door behind him. He strolled across the square, but deep in his sad thoughts he did not take the street that led him home, where a nice strong cup of tea awaited him. He took the wrong turning. He walked slowly along. His heart was heavy. He did not know what he should do with himself. He did not fancy the notion of going back to domestic service, after being his own master for so many years, for the vicar and churchwardens could say what they liked, it was he that had run St. Peter's Neville Square. He could scarcely demean himself by accepting a situation. He had saved a tidy sum, but not enough to live on without doing something, and life seemed to cost more every year. He had never thought to be troubled with such questions the vergers of St. Peter's, like the popes of Rome, were there for life. He had often thought of the pleasant reference the vicar would make in his sermon at Evensong, the first Sunday after his death, to the long and faithful service and the exemplary character of their late verger, Albert Edward Foreman. He sighed deeply. Albert Edward was a non-smoker and a total abstainer, but with a certain latitude. That is to say, he liked a glass of beer with his dinner, and when he was tired, he enjoyed a cigarette. It occurred to him now that one would comfort him, and since he did not carry them, he looked about him for a shop where he could buy a packet of gold flakes. He did not at once see one, and walked on a little. It was a long street, with all sorts of shops in it, but there was not a single one where you could buy cigarettes. "'That's strange,' said Albert Edward. "'To make sure,' He walked right up the street again. No, there was no doubt about it. He stopped and looked reflectively up and down. "'I can't be the only man who walks along this street and wants a fag,' he said. "'I shouldn't wonder about what a fellow might do well with a little shop here. Tobaccos and sweets, you know.' He gave a sudden start. "'That's an idea,' he said. "'Strange how things come to you when you least expect it.' He turned, walked home, and had his tea. "'You're very silent this afternoon, Albert,' his wife remarked. "'I'm thinking,' he said. He considered the matter from every point of view, and next day he went along the street and by good luck found a little shop to let that looked as though it would exactly suit him. Twenty-four hours later he had taken it, and when a month after that he left St. Peter's Neville Square forever, Albert Edward Foreman set up in business as a tobacconist and news agent. His wife said it was a dreadful come down after being verger of St. Peter's, but he answered that you had to move with the times, the church wasn't what it was, and, henceforward, he was going to render unto Caesar what was Caesar's. Albert Edward did very well. He did so well that in a year or so it struck him that he might take a second shop and put a manager in it. He looked for another long street that hadn't a tobacconist in it, and when he found it, and a shop to let, he took it and stocked it. This was a success too. Then it occurred to him that if he could run two he could run half a dozen. So he began walking about London, and whenever he found a long street that had no tobacconist and a shop to let, he took it. In the course of ten years he had acquired no less than ten shops, and he was making money hand over fist. He went round to all of them himself every Monday, collected the week's takings, and took them to the bank. One morning, when he was paying in a bundle of notes and a heavy bag of silver, the cashier told him that the manager would like to see him. He was shown into an office, and the manager shook hands with him. "'Mr. Foreman, I wanted to have a talk with you about the money you've got on deposit with us. Do you know exactly how much it is?' "'Not within a pound or two, sir, but I've got a pretty rough idea. "'Apart from what you paid in this morning, it's a little over thirty thousand pounds,' "'That's a very large sum to have on deposit, and I should have thought you'd do better to invest it. Oh, I wouldn't want to take no risk, sir. I know it's safe in the bank. You needn't have the least anxiety. We'll make you out a list of absolutely gilt-edged securities. They'll bring you in a better rate of interest than we can possibly afford to pay you.' A troubled look settled on Mr. Foreman's distinguished face. "'I've never had anything to do with stocks and shares, and I'd have to leave it all in your hands,' he said. The manager smiled. "'We'll do everything. All you'll have to do the next time you come in is just to sign the transfers.' "'I could do that all right,' said Albert uncertainly. "'But how should I know what I was signing?' "'I suppose you can read,' said the manager a trifle sharply. Mr. Foreman gave him a disarming smile. "'Well, sir, that's just it. I can't. I know it sounds funny-like, but there it is. I can't read all right. Only me name.' and I only learnt to do that when I went into business.' The manager was so surprised that he jumped from his chair. "'That's the most extraordinary thing I ever heard. You see, it's like this, sir, I never had the opportunity until it was too late, and then somehow I wouldn't, I got obstinate-like.' The manager stared at him as though he were a prehistoric monster, "'And you mean to say you've built up this important business and amassed a fortune of thirty thousand pounds without being able to read or write? Good God, man! What would you be now if you had been able to?' "'I can tell you that, sir,' said Mr. Foreman, a little smile on his still aristocratic features. "'I'd be verger of St. Peter's, Neville Square.' Entering the world of this very sympathetic character, I wonder how long he looked forward to being able to use that last delightful line. The delayed punchline must have been close to Mom's own heart. In 1941, with the war having started in Europe, Mom's American publisher Nelson Doubleday invited him to come to live and work in the United States— Doubleday built him a cottage and a riding cabin on the Doubleday Estate in Yemisee, South Carolina. Mom also had a staff, consisting of a cook, a housemaid, and a gardener. The Doubledays wondered how they would all get along, these simple country folk from the south, and the sophisticated world traveler and famous writer from England. About ten days after he arrived, Mom invited the Doubledays for dinner. To their astonishment, They were served a fabulous dinner of a superb onion soup, blue trout, duck a l'orange, a fabulous salad, and an almond souffle for dessert. Years later, Mom's friend Garson Kanan got around to asking Mom about all this. This is from his book, Remembering Mr. Mom. I was interested in getting to the bottom of it, writes Kanan. "'Because, candidly, it seems something less than a likely story to me that you move into a cottage in South Carolina and get a couple of people who know about hominy grits and fried chicken and all at once, presto chango, they turn out a gourmet dinner fit for the most exacting epicure. Come on now.' I told him what we had heard and asked, "'Is it true?' "'Oh, yes,' he said easily, "'quite true.' But how were you able to provide what they called a perfect dinner after ten days with no one but those people who'd never done anything like it before? It's hard to believe. Actually, said Mom, it's no trouble, no trouble at all, unless you call trouble having the same meal eight nights running. At last the secret of a Yemesee dinner is revealed. A plan and the determination, organization, and patience required to carry it out— the characteristic methodical approach, doing and redoing. Perhaps the first time the souffle fell, and the second, and the third, but in time it did not. Apparently he supervised and ate, then commented and corrected. After eight tries they had achieved it, and from that time on could always do it. One thing more, W.S.M., says he has always made it a point in housekeeping to give his servants the same food that he has. It makes a difference, I can see, in the long run. Even now, across time, I envisage them in the small kitchen at Parker's Ferry, Yemisee, South Carolina, Somerset Mom, Nora, Mary, Sunday, and Religious, all eating onion soup and tuit bleu and duck à l'orange and salad and almond soufflé, criticizing, tasting, worrying, hoping, and, incidentally, growing fatter by the day. We have time for one very short story by Somerset Maugham, the most gentle of his pieces that I can think of. Salvatore. I wonder if I can do it. I knew Salvatore first when he was a boy of fifteen with a pleasant, ugly face, a laughing mouth, and carefree eyes. He used to spend the morning lying about the beach with next to nothing on, and his brown body was as thin as a rail. He was full of grace. He was in and out of the sea all the time, swimming with the clumsy, effortless stroke common to the fisher boys. Scrambling up the jagged rocks on his hard feet, for except on Sundays he never wore shoes, he would throw himself into the deep water with a cry of delight. His father was a fisherman who owned his own little vineyard, and Salvatore acted as nursemaid to his two younger brothers. He shouted to them to come in shore when they ventured out too far, and made them dress when it was time to climb the hot, vine-clad hill for the frugal midday meal. But boys in those southern parts grow apace, and in a little while he was madly in love with a pretty girl who lived on the Grande Marina. She had eyes like forest pools, and held herself like a daughter of the Caesars. They were affianced, but they could not marry till Salvatore had done his military service, and when he left the island, which he had never left in his life before, to become a sailor in the navy of King Victor Emmanuel, he wept like a child. It was hard for one who had never been less free than the birds to be at the beck and call of others. It was harder still to live in a battleship with strangers instead of in a little white cottage among the vines, and when he was ashore, to walk in noisy, friendless cities with streets so crowded that he was frightened to cross them, when he had been used to silent paths and the mountains and the sea. I suppose it had never struck him that Ischia, which he looked at every night, it was like a fairy island in the sunset to see what the weather would be like the next day, or Vesuvius, pearly in the dawn, had anything to do with him at all. But when he ceased to have them before his eyes, he realized in some dim fashion that they were as much part of him as his hands and his feet. He was dreadfully homesick. It was hardest of all to be parted from the girl he loved with all his passionate young heart." He wrote to her, in his childlike handwriting, long, ill-spelt letters in which he told her how constantly he thought of her and how much he longed to be back. He was sent here and there, to Spezia, to Venice, to Bari, and finally to China. Here he fell ill of some mysterious ailment that kept him in hospital for months. He bore it with the mute and uncomprehending patience of a dog. When he learnt that it was a form of rheumatism that made him unfit for further service, his heart exulted, for he could go home. And he did not bother, in fact he scarcely listened, when the doctors told him that he would never again be quite well. What did he care when he was going back to the little island he loved so well, and the girl who was waiting for him? When he got into the rowing boat that met the steamer from Naples, and was rowed ashore, he saw his father and mother standing on the jetty, and his two brothers, big boys now, and he waved to them. His eyes searched among the crowd that waited there for the girl. He could not see her. There was a great deal of kissing when he jumped up the steps, and they all, emotional creatures, cried a little as they exchanged their greetings. He asked where the girl was. The mother told him that she did not know. They had not seen her for two or three weeks. So, in the evening, When the moon was shining over the placid sea, and the lights of Naples twinkled in the distance, he walked down to the Grande Marina to her house. She was sitting on the doorstep with her mother. He was a little shy because he had not seen her for so long. He asked her if she had not received the letter he had written to her to say he was coming home. Yes, they had received the letter, and they had been told by another of the island boys that he was ill. Yes, that was why he was back. Was it not a piece of luck? Oh, but they had heard that he would never be quite well again. The doctors talked a lot of nonsense, but he knew very well that now he was home again he would recover. They were silent for a little, and then the mother nudged the girl. She did not try to soften the blow. She told him straight out, with the blunt directness of her race, that she could not marry a man who would never be strong enough to work like a man. They had made up their minds, her mother and father and she, and her father would never give his consent. When Salvatore went home, he found that they all knew. The girl's father had been to tell them what they had decided, but they had lacked the courage to tell him themselves. He wept on his mother's bosom. He was terribly unhappy, but he did not blame the girl. A fisherman's life is hard, and it needs strength and endurance. He knew very well that a girl could not afford to marry a man who might not be able to support her. His smile was very sad, and his eyes had the look of a dog that has been beaten, but he did not complain, and he never said a hard word of the girl he had loved so well. Then, a few months later, when he had settled down to the common round, working in his father's vineyard and fishing, his mother told him that there was a young woman in the village who was willing to marry him. Her name was Asunta. She's as ugly as the devil, he said. She was older than he, twenty-four or twenty-five, and she had been engaged to a man who, while doing his military service, had been killed in Africa. She had a little money of her own, and if Salvatore married her, she could buy him a boat of his own, and they could take a vineyard that by a happy chance happened at the moment to be without a tenant. His mother told him that Asunta had seen him at the festa and had fallen in love with him. Salvatore smiled his sweet smile, and said he would think about it. On the following Sunday, dressed in the stiff black clothes in which he looked so much less well than in the ragged shirt and trousers of every day, he went up to high mass at the parish church, and placed himself so that he could have a good look at the young woman. When he came down again, he told his mother that he was willing. Well, they were married, and they settled down in a tiny whitewashed house in the middle of a handsome vineyard. Salvatore was now a great big, husky fellow, tall and broad, but still with that ingenuous smile and those trusting, kindly eyes that he had had as a boy. He had the most beautiful manners I have ever seen in my life. Asunta was a grim-visaged female with decided features, and she looked old for her years, but she had a good heart and she was no fool. I used to be amused by the little smile of devotion that she gave her husband when he was being very masculine and masterful. She never ceased to be touched by his gentle sweetness, but she could not bear the girl who had thrown him over, and notwithstanding Salvatore's smiling expostulations, she had nothing but harsh words for her. Presently, children were born to them. It was a hard enough life— All through the fishing season, towards evening, he set out in his boat with one of his brothers for the fishing grounds. It was a long pole of six or seven miles, and he spent the night catching the profitable cuttlefish. Then there was the long row back again in order to sell the catch in time for it to go on the early boat to Naples. At other times he was working in his vineyard from dawn till the heat drove him to rest, and then again, when it was a trifle cooler, till dusk. Often his rheumatism prevented him from doing anything at all, and then he would lie about the beach, smoking cigarettes, with a pleasant word for everyone, notwithstanding the pain that racked his limbs. The foreigners who came down to bathe and saw him there said that these Italian fishermen were lazy devils. Sometimes he used to bring his children down to give them a bath. They were both boys, and at this time the elder was three and the younger less than two. They sprawled about at the water's edge, stark naked, and Salvatore, standing on a rock, would dip them in the water. The elder one bore it with stoicism, but the baby screamed lustily. Salvatore had enormous hands, like legs of mutton, coarse and hard from constant toil, but when he bathed the children, holding them so tenderly, drying them with delicate care, upon my word they were like flowers— he would seat the naked baby on the palm of his hand and hold him up, laughing a little at his smallness, and his laugh was like the laughter of an angel. His eyes then were as candid as his child's. I started by saying that I wondered if I could do it, and now I must tell you what it is that I have tried to do. I wanted to see whether I could hold your attention for a few pages while I drew for you the portrait of a man just an ordinary fisherman, who possessed nothing in the world except a quality which is the rarest, the most precious, and the loveliest that any one can have. Heaven only knows why he should so strangely and unexpectedly have possessed it. All I know is that it shone in him with a radiance that, if it had not been so unconscious and so humble, would have been to the common run of men hardly bearable, and... In case you have not guessed what the quality was, I will tell you. Goodness. Just goodness. You've been listening to The Verger and Salvatore by William Somerset Maugham. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. If you're enjoying this series, please tell your friends. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, all the best.